0: Uh, good evening, Aristotelians, and um, welcome to uh, the second meeting of uh, 2017. Tonight, it's a great pleasure to welcome Genia um, from the University of Southampton, um, who I just have um, encountered on the lectern here, by chance, a copy of her book, The Illusion of Doubt, which came out just before Christmas, The Illusion of Doubt, and she looks a... Uh, Beautiful little volume. Uh, She will be talking on such themes tonight, and it's a great pleasure to introduce her talk on Beliefs in a Vat. Thank you very much, Tim. Um, Thank you, Aristotelians, for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, Yes, so the topic of my talk is related to themes in the book, but I'm kind of hoping to go beyond some of the things that I say in the book today as well, so it's not just a rehash of what's already there. Um, So the main um, thesis that I'm going to try and defend today um, is the thought that although we can of course make sense of the thought um, that local error is conceivable, we can't in the end um, allow that idea to generalize. So often it's thought that we can easily as it were, aggregate ourselves from a local sceptical scenario to a global one, Um, but the main theme of tonight's talk is going to try and challenge that idea, that the thought that just because local error is possible, we can generalise or aggregate ourselves into a global or radical sceptical scenario. So what I'm going to try and show is that an asymmetry exists between local and global sceptical cases um, such that we can't just infer global error from local error. Um, Instead, what I'm going to try and show is that what really gives rise to the radical sceptical problem um, is an unquestioned acceptance of what's generally referred to um, as the new evil genius thesis, with an obvious Cartesian pedigree um, in the contemporary literature um, which is basically the notion that I and my invited counterpart share the same perceptual experiences even though my, (coughs) as it were, benighted twin has never had any contact with an external reality. So that's the new evil genius thesis and I'm going to try and show that in the end this thesis isn't really coherent, we can't make proper sense of it. Okay the strategy that I'll be pursuing is as follows. So in the next section I'm going to try and show um, that local and global sceptical scenarios are significantly different and that arguments from perceptual illusion contrary to what's generally thought actually undermine rather than provide good reasons for radical scepticism. And then once that groundwork um, has been laid I'm going to try and show Um, that the global sceptical scenario simply assumes the truth of the new evil genius thesis, which in turn presupposes that meaning and belief ascription are possible in contexts where all I can have access to is my internal paraphernalia. And I'm going to try and show that in the end, that's what we can't make sense of, um, and that consequently it's impossible to maintain with the sceptic that knowledge of the content of our perceptual beliefs can be preserved while knowledge of an external world is jettisoned. Okay, so local sceptical scenarios and arguments from perceptual illusion. So one of the standard ways of motivating radical scepticism consists of trying to show that if it's conceivable for something sometimes to be the case, it's also possible to imagine that it could always be the case. Or more pertinently, if one can sometimes believe that P, even though P is not the case, it's possible that one could always believe that P, even though P is not the case. And I'm going to call this type of argument an aggregate argument or the attempt to get to a global or radical sceptical scenario by way of aggregating cases of local error. And I'm going to try and show that such aggregation attempts fail and hence that global sceptical scenarios can't be constructed out of local ones. So that aggregate arguments appear at first blush intuitive probably stems from the fact that insufficient attention tends to be paid in contemporary epistemology to the differences between local sceptical cases on the one hand, so the possibility of my being wrong about many of my beliefs, and global or radical sceptical scenarios on the other. The thought that all our perceptual beliefs taken together could be false since no one might ever be in touch with an external world at all. And so when the shorthand um, brain in a VAT scenario tends to get employed, it's frequently left unclear what the scope of such cases is really supposed to be. So the fact that appeal is always made to some kind of sceptical brain-in-a-vat scenario glosses over, um, I'm going to try and show various pertinent differences between um, different ways in which we can construe um, such cases. So, for example, is the brain-in-a-vat scenario supposed to attack the possibility of local knowledge possession, for example mine, say if I suddenly became invited but was previously normal or if only I were invited and everyone else were normal or are they supposed to undermine the possibility of anyone's ever possessing or having possessed knowledge of anything the thought whether you know perception ever has the world in view that would be the global or radical skeptical scenario the thought that perhaps you know perception never even in the best possible case, gives us access to reality. So, since those two cases are distinct, it's not sufficient to appeal to local fallibility, run an aggregate argument and obtain the conclusion that, for all we know, we might be in the global situation. For, as we shall see, the fact that we can sometimes be wrong doesn't entail, but rather precludes, that we could always be wrong. So, if we start off by taking the brain in a vat scenario not as a metaphor, but literally, that is, as actually specifying a scenario where I have become invatted but was previously normal, and all my current impressions are being generated by electrodes, then this will be a description of, I mean, an extensive local case, but nevertheless a local case with certain determinant implications. For example, that there is a world in which the vat containing my brain exists, that there are evil scientists or robots or aliens or what have you who caused me to become invaded, that it's scientifically possible to separate brains from bodies without killing off the brain, that I might find out about my previous invated state by, for instance, having my brain reinserted into my body, that I am my brain, and so on. So, this as it were literal fleshing out of the sceptical scenario is precisely what turns it into a local case. If I imagine that I might be the victim of such a predicament, this doesn't imply that anyone else is, or indeed that the external world as such does not exist, since, as we've just seen, it actually presupposes that there is an external world containing vats, brains and evil scientists. So, all this implies is that for as long as I'm a brain in a vat, most of what I believe about the world is false, but it doesn't imply um, that perception never actually gives you access um, to an external reality. Okay, so the foregoing <coughs> parallels what so called arguments from illusion can achieve in epistemology, since here too the possibility of local fallibility does not imply the possibility of global error. That's to say, just as the local does not imply the global sceptical scenario, so the possibility of perceptual error or illusion doesn't imply systematic or global perceptual unreliability. For example, I'm only able to determine that when I look at a square tower from a distance, it will appear round because I can trust my perception that from close by it looks square, and there's a scientific explanation available that can tell me why it nevertheless appears round from some way off. If perception in general were deceptive, I could not make the judgment that perceptual appearances are sometimes misleading. All I could do would be to report, for instance, that at time t1 I have the impression that thing 1 that I see is square, while at time t2 I have the impression that thing 2 that I see is round. (coughs) And since (coughs) thing 1 and thing 2 might, for all I know, be different things, I could not even conclude that one perceptual experience might be an accurate representation of the way things are, while the other might not. But if I cannot make this judgment, I'm similarly unable to conclude that at time T2 I'm being misled, for my perceptual experience at T2 would only be (laughs) misleading if it were an experience of the same thing that I encountered at T1, so that my reports at T1 and T2 would turn out to be in conflict with each other. As long as I have no reason for assuming that my perceptual experiences of thing one and thing two are in fact experiences of the same physical object, however, which of course I wouldn't if perception were generally defective, for then I would have no grounds for trusting one report more than the other, I would rather have to assume they're equally misleading, there's no way of of determining that a perceptual illusion (coughs) has in fact occurred. All I could say in such a case is that I'm having different perceptions at different times but this of course doesn't allow me to infer that at time t2 I was misled and hence that perceptual errors are possible. Consequently far from showing that perception in general is defective the possibility of perceptual error actually presupposes that perception is generally in good working order. Hence, aggregate arguments based on the possibility of perceptual error fail. I'm not entitled to infer that because I can sometimes be wrong, local case, it's possible that I could always be wrong, global case. So, in other words, just as we need to presuppose the existence of an external world that is broadly like our own, in order to get the literal brain in a vat scenario off the ground, So perception must generally be taken to be reliable if an argument from illusion is to be constructed. So what makes local sceptical scenarios possible is the very thing that, ironically, they're drafted in to undermine, a background of generally veridical perceptual experience. In this respect, the literal brain in a vat scenario is just a souped up, as it were, sci-fi version of the more pedestrian arguments from illusion, and cannot, for this reason, achieve more than they can, to show that perceptual error is possible, that human beings are fallible. Since we've already seen, however, that aggregate arguments are fallacious, an appeal to perceptual fallibility alone is not enough to get one the conclusion that it's possible that no one might ever have had true perceptual beliefs about the world at all. If sceptical scenarios, therefore, (coughs) amounted to no more than the local variety, one wouldn't have much reason to be concerned about them. Now, perhaps one might want to object here, that at least it's logically possible that I'm currently invatted and only vainly imagining that I'm standing here giving a talk, or as Descartes puts it, that I might be dreaming that I'm giving this talk. Um, And of course, although that's true, it's important to bear in mind that the mere fact that I'm able to conceive of such a state of invatment doesn't give me a real reason to suppose that I might actually be the victim of such a scenario. Why not? Well, because in the absence of a general argument designed to undermine the possibility of perceptual knowledge per se, not just my own, I don't have any real grounds for thinking that the imagined scenario um, is an actual one. It's a mere logical possibility. It's not something I have any real reason for. Um, And so unless one has already motivated the thought that, you know, even in the best possible case, perception is going to fall short of providing one with knowledge of an external world, um, one could just appeal to, you know, the fact that so far um, no one has ever managed to to create a brain in a bat and so on and so forth. So the mere fact That we are able to imagine such a scenario doesn't yet mean that we need to take it seriously, not if we're merely basing this um, on local um, skeptical considerations. Okay, but things always get worse. So, in its more serious and virulent form, um, the brain in a vat hypothesis, of course, operates as a metaphor. That is, it's not supposed to be taken literally in the way that I've just described, but it's rather taken to be an expression of the more serious worry that, as I've already said, even in the best possible case, perception is never factive or able to engage with an external world. It's, in other words, the concern that there might be a systematic mismatch between everything we collectively believe to be the case about the world and the way the world actually is. And of course, if that were in fact so, then even if it seemed otherwise, one would never have knowledge of anything, nor could we ever find (coughs) out, even in principle, whether such a scenario obtained, as any form of evidence one could appeal to, would itself be part of the grand illusion. So there's no empirical means of trying to show that there's something wrong with the radical skeptical scenario. Okay, so, maybe what we need to do um, is wonder why we might think that such a predicament could be the actual one. What are the motivating reasons here? What so much as gives us the idea that all of our beliefs taken together could fail to match the way the world is, given that we can't just extract such a notion from local sceptical considerations? Why does the radical sceptical scenario seem so threatening? Well, I think the underlying reason, which tends to manifest itself in a variety of different ways, seems to be the thought that we're somehow not in direct touch with the objects that make up the physical world, but only come to know about them by way of making an inference from our perceptual experiences or our mental states. And proponents of such a notion that basically we're kind of locked into a world of experience from which we have to reason outwards um, to try and determine the causes of those experiences um, if we take seriously such a notion then of course we also have to take for granted that it's possible to know how things subjectively seem to one even though it's conceivable that one's perceptual experiences as a class may never be experiences of anything. So such a view, if you like, implies that one's perceptual experiences can, in some sense, exist on their own and be something one has introspective access to, um, even though there might be no external world out there to supply that content. Um, And in the book, I call this notion the Cartesian picture. It's basically um, the, the, the kind of notion that, many contemporary philosophers still take for granted that the reason the radical sceptical scenario is so threatening is because, you know, the, the sceptic is raising an inherent problem that just seems to be part of, you know, how things are. We're locked into this inner mental cage of experience um, and we don't know what the causes of those experiences are because that would, as it were, require somehow getting outside of this mental cage, this world of (coughs) inner experiences, which might be just the same, um, you know, whether we're actually in touch with an external world or not. So it seems clear that some such notion, maybe the details differ, but it seems that such a conception of experience is the, as it were, the intuition behind the new evil genius thesis. The thought that the experiences that I share with my embattered counterpart and that I base my perceptual knowledge on are in all relevant internal respects the same. For if this thesis is coherent, it entails that one's putative knowledge claims about the world can be derived solely from knowledge of how things appear to one, since unless one can rule out that one is in the global bat world, one can never have knowledge of anything else. Now, given that it must be possible to express these alleged knowledge claims in a language, if they are supposed to be expressed at all, then this conception further implies that a language must be possible that doesn't presuppose any acquaintance with an external world or with other minds, because of course if we were in the global bat world, there wouldn't be any such things. Consequently, the words of this language would have to derive their meaning purely from being linked to episodes of one's own consciousness, since there may be nothing else, which means that it must be possible to identify and describe these episodes independently of whether they ever inform one of reality or of the facts. Should it turn out, therefore, that this is impossible, that in in effect there can be no such thing as meaning and belief ascription in the global sceptical scenario, then this also shows that the radical sceptic can't have it both ways here, that she can't (coughs) hang on to the notion that knowledge of the content of one's sense experiences is possible, while at the same time maintaining that knowledge of the external world is forever foreclosed. So what I'm going to try and do in the next section of the paper is not try and offer some kind of refutation um, of global or radical scepticism, because I think that's misguided. Um, If one agrees to the radical skeptic's Cartesian picture, um, then, you know, trying to answer the problem from within that picture is going to be doomed. And I think we can, you know, learn from the history of philosophy that you know, taking on board this conception and still trying to um, refute radical scepticism isn't very successful. So I'm not going to try and offer any kind of refutation. I'm rather going to try and show um, that meaning and belief ascription isn't possible in the radical sceptical scenario, and thus um, that this Cartesian picture of experience um, ultimately is shown to be incoherent, even though it seems intuitive at first. It's actually, it's actually mistaken, but not in the sense of being false, but in the sense of being an illusion. We can't, in the end, really make sense of it. OK, I'm going to start off um, by looking at Davidson, given that he has famously argued that it's impossible to interpret someone with preponderantly false beliefs, as beliefs can only be ascribed if they are in the main veridical. So if Davidson is right about this, and it's a condition of having an interpretable language that most of what a speaker says is true, then given that we are able to understand and interpret others, it's incoherent to suppose that radical perceptual error is possible. So given the far-reaching consequences for radical skepticism of Davidson's argument, um, it's worth taking a closer look at the details. So, in his paper, A Coherence Theory of Truth and Knowledge, Davidson contends that there's an intimate connection between theories of meaning and epistemology, as we need an answer to the question of how one determines that a sentence is true. Now, this question raises the same kind of difficulties as the corresponding question in epistemology about what justifies our beliefs. And Davidson thinks two responses are possible. One is coherentist, seeking the justification of beliefs only in other beliefs, and the other is foundationalist, attempting to anchor at least some sentences held true to what Davidson calls non-verbal rocks. Now, I'm not going to argue for either one of those, um, and I'm not sure that Davidson um, is right in seeming to imply that there are only these two options, so I'm going to put that Um, consideration to one side. I think it's not fundamental to to the argument in the paper. So Davidson suggests that we should give up the idea that meaning or knowledge can be grounded on something that counts as an ultimate source of justification, as the search for an empirical foundation, that is intermediaries of some kind, such as the empiricist sense data or experience or the given, merely leads to (coughs) scepticism. So here's a quote. From Davidson. For if the for if the intermediaries are merely causes, they don't justify the beliefs they cause, while if they deliver information, they may be lying. Since we can't swear intermediaries to truthfulness, we should allow no intermediaries between our beliefs and their objects in the world. Of course they're causal intermediaries, what we must guard against are epistemic ones. In other words, if experience is conceived as merely a brute cause in a radically externalist sense, then it can't enter into what McDowell calls the space of reasons and provide justification for our perceptual beliefs. While if it is thought of in roughly Cartesian terms as consisting of an internal realm of fully conceptualized private intermediary items, which may or may not accurately represent the external world, then of course it leads to skepticism. Since Davidson rightly regards this dilemma as fatal, the only plausible alternative is, as it were, to cut out the middleman and to connect our perceptual beliefs, not with experiential intermediaries, but with the objects in the world that cause our beliefs. And this is why Davidson says in the plainest and methodologically most basic cases, we must take the objects of a belief to be the causes of that belief. But how, in the context of radical interpretation, do we know which objects are causing someone's beliefs, given that we don't yet know what their sentences mean? It's here that Davidson's principle of charity comes in, directing the interpreter to translate so as to read some of his own standards of truth into the pattern of sentences held true by the speaker. So, for example, if the interpretee utters the word rabbit, whenever a rabbit is scampering past, then it's reasonable to assume is paribus, that rabbit means rabbit. Of course, we can sometimes be wrong about this, but if someone is supposed to be interpretable, we cannot start with the assumption that all of his beliefs about the world might be false. That is to say, it can't be the rule that interpreter and interpretee understand each other on the basis of shared but completely erroneous beliefs. Why not? Well, because we don't first cons- Sorry, why not? Because we don't first form concepts and then discover what they apply to. Rather, we learn both at the same time, or as Wittgenstein says, light dawns gradually over the whole. Consequently, it's idle to think that we could fall into massive error by accepting this principle, for it is non-optional. Again, as Davidson says, we make maximum sense of the words and thoughts of others when we interpret them in a way that optimises agreement. What are the implications of this for radical scepticism? If Davidson's account is correct, it seems that we can't make sense of a brain in a vat's language, as ex hypothesize all the perceptual beliefs of a brain in a vat are supposed to be false. If Davidson is right, however, that it is a condition of content description that some of the brain in a vat's beliefs must, on pain of inter- uninterpretability, be veridical, then these beliefs are either not about the sorts of things that would generate the sceptical worry, that is, if veridical, they would have to be interpreted as being about electrode stimulations, not about, say, tables and trees, or it is impossible to assign beliefs to the brain in a bat altogether. <coughs> either way, Davidson's argument undermines the new evil genius thesis. The brain in a bat's perceptual beliefs are either different from those of its non invited twin, or it's impossible to ascribe coherent beliefs to the brain in a bat at all. Now, that Davidson's argument seems to have these anti-skeptical consequences is for Colin McGinn a prima facie reason to think that it must be false. For how can, as it were, semantic considerations show that radical skepticism is mistaken? Parche Davidson, McGinn wants to maintain that we can make sense of experience, qua epistemic intermediary, and that consequently, contra Davidson and Putnam, some concepts are in the head. Quote from McGinn, experience can ground concept possession if it can represent the property denoted by the concept in question, but it cannot do so if the property is not capable of being represented in experience, that is, if it is not a property relating to the appearance of things. End quote. In other words, McGinn believes that a halfway house is possible here. On his view, observational concepts, such as red and round, for example, are in the head, while non-observational concepts are dependent on external factors. This means that on McGinn's conception, it's possible to attribute observational concepts to a brain in a vat, even though the beliefs these concepts figure in could all be false. So on McGinn's, as it were, hybrid view, the sceptical problem re-emerges, at least for the observational concepts. And in the remainder of this section, I'm going to argue that McGinn's contention that experience can ground concept possession if the experience can represent the property in question is misconceived and consequently doesn't pose a challenge to Davidson's view. <coughs> okay, so recall that if you are in the global sceptical scenario, then you are, as it were, a brain in a bat from birth, although this is also kind of metaphorical, because I'm taking brain in a vat from birth here to mean, you know, no contact with an external reality at all. So even assuming you are brain in a vat from birth, that would again presuppose that there is an external world, so it's metaphorical in a sense, but to make sure it's clear that I'm talking about the global scenario, I've called it a brain in a vat from birth. So could such a brain in a vat, um, you know, form any concepts, given that this brain has never interacted with other physical beings and objects at all. And whatever it takes to be an experience of a physical object is merely an experience of an episode of its own consciousness, masquerading, as it was, an experience of something external. But if that's the case, then this seems to imply that you've been able to derive all your perceptual concepts from your own private experiences, the episodes of your consciousness, since in this global bat world there is nothing else apart from your own uh, inner private experiences. So this raises the question, is such a private experience language possible? Let's take the putative experience of red. If you are in the global VAT world and there are no real red objects for you independently to refer to, how can you know what kind of experience you are having? Unless you presuppose a version of what Sellers calls the myth of the given, that an experience of red is, as it were, a kind of ready-made internal introspectable item that just somehow tells you that it's an experience of red, how can you differentiate a red experience from all your other mental furniture? given that you don't have anything independent and external to appeal to, and you don't yet have any concepts, any language, um, any public um, concepts to to appeal to, but only the episodes of your own consciousness, which seem to stand on the same level as the experience that you're currently trying to identify, then it seems that unless you question-beggingly start with the assumption that your experiences are somehow self-identifying, you know, how do you so much as bring off naming and identifying these private episodes or experiences? In other words, and as Wittgenstein has famously pointed out, one cannot just take it for granted that one can give a sign a meaning by, say, mentally uttering a sound in the presence of a certain internal phenomenon. Why not? because the sound uttering must be able to provide one with rules for the correct use of the word, and these cannot just be read off from the episode of consciousness itself. For unless one already has prior knowledge of the post where the new word is to be stationed, one won't understand the ostensive definition – this is called "tove," for example – uttered in the presence of a pencil either given that the word tov might mean a whole host of different things, for instance, writing utensil, number, physical object in general, position on the table, colour, sharp, blunt, etc. Unless one already knows that someone means means ostensively to define the name of a particular writing utensil, which in turn presupposes that one has already acquired the concept writing utensil, one isn't going to understand the ostensive definition as one will have no idea what the this in this is called Tove is supposed to refer to. In short, ostensive definition underdetermines the definiendum unless some prior linguistic competence is already present. But of course, things are even worse for the brain in a vat from birth. For the brain in a vat from birth could only give itself a private extensive definition of a word or concept, as ex hypothesi, it has no access to anything public and external, such as physical pencils. So let's imagine the following case. I want to keep a diary about the recurrence of certain sensations. To this end, I associate, sorry, a certain sensation singular, I associate it with the sign S and write this sign in a calendar for every day on which I have the sensation. I first want to observe that a definition of the sign cannot be formulated. But all the same, I can give one to myself as a kind of extensive definition. How? Can I point to the sensation? Not in the ordinary sense. But I speak or write the sign down, and at the same time I concentrate my attention on the sensation, and so, as it were, point to it inwardly. But what is this ceremony for? For that's all it seems to be. A definition serves to lay down the meaning of a sign, doesn't it? Well, that's done precisely by concentrating my attention. For in this way, I commit it to memory, the connection between the sign and the sensation. But I commit it to memory can only mean this process brings it about that I remember the connection correctly in the future. But in the present case, I have no criterion of correctness. One would like to say, whatever is going to seem correct to me is correct and that only means that here we can't talk about correct. Given how compressed Wittgenstein's argument is, it's usually thought that its aim is to attack the reliability of memory in the private context when its actual target is the very idea of private-ostensive definition as such, something that hasn't got anything to do with um, a general scepticism about memory. So philosophers who endorse the memory-sceptical reading believe that Wittgenstein is claiming that there is no such thing as private rule following since in the private scenario no distinction can be drawn between what seems right to me and what is actually right. They then go on to link this idea to the thought that in the private case where I can't appeal to the judgment of others I have no way of checking whether my present sensation which I take to be S again actually corresponds to the sample I originally concentrated my attention on and thus labelled S in the first place. In other words, it may be that I misremember which sensation is supposed to be S and since I've got nothing outside of myself to appeal to, as it were, no external checks to corroborate what I believe to be the case, whatever is going to seem right to me is right and that just means that one can't talk about right. Now, the obvious problem with this reading is, of course, that it not only undermines the possibility of a public language—sorry, uh, of a private language—but also of a public one, because, of course, in public language, we also have to be able to rely on our memory of what words mean. So, from that point of view, um, if that were what Wittgenstein is saying, um, he's obviously not advancing a very good argument. Um, and furthermore. It seems that construing the argument in this way actually already concedes the main point to the sceptic. So for that reason, it's also not a good way um, of reading the argument. So it's not that Wittgenstein is attacking the notion that I won't be able to identify future instances of S. Instead, he's trying to undermine the thought that any connection has so far been set up between the putative internal episode and the sign S. After all, the question of future correct identification presupposes that the sign S has already been given a meaning and that's just what is at issue. In other words, memory-sceptical readings already start with the assumption that meaning is possible in the global bat world since they grant to the brain in a bat from birth that it's been able to set up a connection between S and the internal episode when the coherence of that notion, in the radical sceptical scenario, is the very thing that is in question. For if I assume that I already have the concept of a sensation, then of course I can introduce new words for as yet unheard of sensations. But given that sensation is itself a public concept, the private linguist or sceptic can't just help himself to this notion without showing how it can be acquired purely internally, That is, without presupposing a connection to anything outer, such as pain, behaviour, daggers, etc. or other public concepts, such as expressing pain, and so on. So, the private linguist must be able to derive the concept solely by concentrating his attention on a private internal phenomenon. As X-hypothesis, that's all that he has access to. But if so, then an appeal to a memory of S won't help him since to have a memory of s presupposes that he already knows what s means. So let's imagine a table, something like a dictionary, that exists only in our imagination. A dictionary can be used to justify the translation of a word x by a word y. But are we also to call it a justification if such a table is to be looked up only in the imagination? Well, yes, then it's a subjective justification. But justification consists in appealing to an independent authority. But surely I can appeal from one memory to another. For example, I don't know if I've remembered the time of departure of a train correctly, and to check it I call to mind how a page of the timetable looked. Isn't this the same sort of case? No, for this procedure must now actually call forth the correct memory. If the mental image of the timetable could not itself be tested for correctness, How could it confirm the correctness of the first memory? As if someone were to buy several copies of today's morning paper to assure himself that what it said was true. Probably what everyone was doing the day Trump got elected in the hope (laughs) that it might be false. Far from making any kind of verificationist point here, what Wittgenstein is really doing is accusing the private linguist of begging the question. For to call up the memory in order to confirm something presupposes that the memory in question is indeed a memory of the sort of thing that will if the memory is accurate confirm the thing in question that is to say it's only if my memory is a memory of a train timetable and is accurate that it will confirm the time of departure of the train if i called up the memory of a page in my gordon ramsay recipe book instead say then the memory, even if accurate, would not confirm the train departure time. In other words, the private linguist is only entitled to appeal to his memory of S as a way of confirming that his present internal episode is S if the memory of S is a memory of S and not, say, of T, U, or X, Y, Z. But again, the private linguist can only know that it's a memory of S if he already knows what S means. It's the appeal to the memory of S, however, that's supposed to provide the criterion for what S means. So the private linguist is, in effect, using the memory of the meaning of S to confirm itself. And it's for that reason that Wittgenstein says that what the private linguist is doing is like buying several copies of the same morning paper in order to assure himself that what it says is true. If this is right, then parche memory-sceptical readings. It's actually irrelevant whether or not one's memory deceives one, since if one doesn't yet know what S means, There's nothing for one's memory to deceive one about. So what Wittgenstein's anti-private language dialectic is therefore supposed to show is that in the global that world, S will remain a meaningless sign, since introspection alone cannot give it a use. That is to say, Wittgenstein is trying to undermine the old myth that we can somehow read off from the object itself the way that its name is to be applied, a myth that is helped on its way by what Putnam calls a pictorial semantics, the empiricist notion that words refer to ideas which are mental copies of the objects we perceive. Now, of course, even if none of these notions are explicitly endorsed by most contemporary philosophers, they form part of the inherited and perhaps intuitive-seeming background that gives sustenance to the idea that a private experience language must be possible. For with this picture in place, it's going to seem natural to think that just as we learn what cow means by looking at cows, so we might learn what sensation means by, as it were, looking at our sensations. But is it sufficient to give a word a meaning, that it be uttered when and, when, and, when and only when a cow is present? Of course not. So here is Malcolm. The sound might refer to anything or nothing. What is necessary is that it should play a part in various activities, in calling, fetching, counting cows, distinguishing cows from other things, and so on. If the sound has no fixed place in activities, then it isn't a word for cow. To be sure, I can sit in my chair and talk about cows and not be engaged in any of those activities, but what makes my words refer to cows is the fact that I've already mastered those activities. They lie in the background. In other words, just as human agreement in judgments is a necessary background condition for the possibility of rule-following or belief ascription, so the role that a word plays in various activities provides the necessary background that gives it a meaning. But if so, then it's not possible to learn a word's meaning simply by looking at the thing it is supposed to denote, as doing so will not give one insight into how this word is actually used in the various practices in which it is at home. Consequently, a mistaken conception of how we acquire concepts in the ordinary public sphere when applied to the internal realm conceived as a kind of inner analogue of an outer external world is naturally going to suggest to us that a private experience language must be possible. In short, unless we plump for the myth of the given and what Putnam calls a magical theory of reference where somehow, you know, words just magically refer to things... It's hard to see how the brain in a bat from birth can get a private <coughs> experience language off the ground. For if I have nothing outside of my own consciousness to appeal to, how except magically can I learn to discriminate between these highly volatile and transient internal goings-on? Without a connection to anything outer and external, it's difficult to conceive how the brain in a bat from birth can so much as identify its episode of consciousness as being of a certain kind. And if the brain in a bat from birth can't pick out any stable particular, then it cannot try and name that thing either. For as we've already seen, in order to understand an extensive definition, I must already know what specific feature of the object in question is being singled out for naming. But this seems impossible if there is nothing independent and external that I can appeal to as a reference point. And it seems to be here that Wittgenstein's and Davidson's arguments converge. If that's right, though, then McGinn's objection to Davidson misfires, if we use um, some of Wittgenstein's argument. There is no halfway house that, as it were, allows epistemic intermediaries in through the back door. For If, for example, I don't learn what red or any other observational concept means, by being presented with a self-subsistent internal intermediary item, a kind of unconceptualized given, thought to form part of an interface of experiences which intervenes between myself and the external world, and from which one can somehow magically read off how the word red is to be used, then there is no longer any room either for the thought that what lies beyond the interface might be radically different from what we think it is. That is to say, if we all collectively were brains in a vat from birth, then the experiences that we would allegedly be being fed could only have the same content as our real external world experiences if it is taken for granted that the putatively phenomenologically indistinguishable brain in a vat experiences possessed some kind of intrinsic content that could be accessed merely by inspecting these inner experiences themselves. Since such private inspection could provide us with the relevant concepts only if private extensive definition and magical acts of reference were possible, the arguments advance against this notion show that there is in the end no making sense of the idea that we could be wrong about everything all of the time. I'm now going to consider a few objections. So someone might say, well, perhaps this was all too quick. What if someone argued that McGinn's hybrid conception just doesn't go far enough. Um, Isn't it the case that we all need to derive our concepts purely from our own inner experience and not from anything outer whose presence we can at best infer? So here's such a suggestion coming from (coughs) Erwin Goldstein. Wittgensteinians who understand learning a word from one's own case in this way, i.e. from one's own experience, tie the theorists they oppose to an innocent, unavoidable practice. There are words a person can learn only through his own sensory experience is an innocent truth. Even a non-skeptic who entertains no doubts about other minds or an external world must admit that there are words a person can learn only from his own sensory experience. Now, there's quite a lot of equivocation going on in this passage. If, for example, learning through your own sensory experience means what Wittgenstein's private linguist means, namely being confronted by some sort of experiential given, which one goes on to name privately, then this, of course, isn't an innocent truth, but rather a substantial metaphysical claim. That Goldstein thinks the thesis innocuous perhaps stems from the fact that he's conflating two different things, to perceive something and to have a sensory experience. Although the two phrases sound similar, they're evidently not the same, something clearly revealed by the fact that Goldstein is, cons- is committed to the further claim that one perceives only one's sensory experiences and not, say, physical objects. So he says, yes, we learn red in a way empirically the same as the way you describe We learn red through the kind of experience you describe as one, in which we encounter an external object which our parent calls red. However, when a person has this type of experience, he is directly aware of only his own sensations. A person gains knowledge of an external world only by reasoning from these sensations to their external cause. Now, the confidence with which Goldstein asserts that one is only ever directly aware of one's sensations and hence that knowledge of external objects can at best be inferential seems to betray his antecedent and perhaps unwitting commitment to the myth, since if he didn't reify his sensations into intermediary self-subsistent items intervening between observers in the external world, what would entitle him to make this claim? How does Goldstein know, for example, that we don't perceive physical objects given that this is how things actually seem to us? It's surely neither an a priori nor an empirical truth that we perceive only our own sensations. Consequently, if one doesn't already start with the idea that there must be an interface or epistemic intermediaries, what reason could one have to doubt that one is mostly in touch with the physical reality? Well, Perhaps Goldstein is taken in by what, in the first section, I have called aggregate arguments. That is to think that it follows from the fact that one can sometimes be misled about about what one perceives, that one could always be misled about what one perceives, and hence that one may never be in touch with an external reality at all, but only with a pale copy of it, sensory experience with a capital E, the object of the myth." But we've already seen that such arguments are fallacious and not by themselves sufficient to generate either the cogency of the new evil genius thesis or the radical sceptical scenario. So it seems Goldstein's objection fails. Now, finally, as an option of last resort, a sceptic may want to bite the bullet and say something along the following lines. Let's say that you've successfully established that the brain in a vat from birth can't succeed in giving meaning to the expressions of her private language because she can't establish on her own conditions of correct use for these expressions. How does it follow from this that our perceptual experiences cannot be mere appearances? All that follows is that if that's what they are, then there are no conditions of correct use for the terms with which we describe our experiences. But none of this shows that this isn't the situation we find ourselves in. Remember that the brain in a vat from birth may well be under the illusion of having established conditions of correct use. Why can't that be our situation? The answer is, if the brain in a bat from birth is under the illusion of having established conditions of correct use, then her words mean nothing, for they have no conditions of correct use. And if her words mean nothing, then the brain in a bat from birth isn't saying anything. Consequently, the radical sceptic cannot even save the appearances. That is to say, the skeptic's appearances, never mind whether they actually are of an external reality or not, do not possess any content. That is, they're not even appearances. And hence, everything goes dark in the skeptic's interior. So if it's correct that the brain in a bat from birth is under the illusion of having established conditions of correct use, then it would seem that the sceptic has no leg left to stand on. So to conclude... If what I've argued in this paper is right, then the radical sceptic, or our sceptical alter ego, seems to be faced with an insuperable problem. If we accept the view that knowledge of the facts may never be possible, then Pacem again al*. we cannot immunize knowledge of the content of our sense experiences against radical sceptical doubt either, so um, we then have a problem endorsing the new evil genius thesis, which seems to be necessary um, to generate the radical skeptical problem. And of course, that means it's then impossible to explain without appealing to incoherent notions such as the myth and magical theories of reference, how our putative external world beliefs can have the conceptual content that they do. But it seems that we are able to formulate such propositions. So knowledge of the facts must in principle be possible. Thank you.